just want to um, welcome you all. Um, those of you who are catching up on, say, Apple Podcasts or Amazon uh, Prime Podcasts, we welcome you all. A special mention to the people uh, listening in uh, Africa. I know that's a big place, but uh, some of you were able to listen live, being on the same similar timeline, and some maybe after the event. So a very warm welcome to you. We hope hope you can understand me, and I uh, hope you get some blessing from this today. So welcome, welcome everyone. And we're going to then go on to this uh, final message from the book of Jonah. And so we're on this uh, fourth chapter, of course. And as usual, I'd like to start with some uh, commentary about the chapter. And then we'll we'll home in on a particular a particular area, a particular idea. So, what 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 is it we've seen so far? We've 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 seen uh, Jonah. Uh, we've seen him run away. We've seen him get caught by God. Uh, we've seen him eventually submit to the mission that God had for him, which was preaching to the people of Nineveh. And then there was this massive act of repentance, remember? Which, of course, was what we focused on last week. And chapter 4, then, obviously, you've just heard it. It looks at the aftermath. So, Jonah had gone and uh, left the city to sit on a hill somewhere to see what would happen. Maybe, Maybe he would hear that great wail of repentance you know just continuing to lift up from the city and he'd have to witness the awful spectacle of God showing compassion towards the Ninevites but just maybe just maybe the repentance would be a sham so maybe God would change his mind but in Jonah's head there was still a slim possibility he'd get what he wanted the annihilation of Nineveh now while he's up there sitting on that spot he gets some branches some vegetation and he puts together this makeshift shelter well it was to protect him from the the heat in the middle of the day it could go way over a hundred degrees down there now God had determined to teach Jonah one more lesson the prophet would learn not only that God was right to show mercy, but that Jonah himself was at fault in opposing it. It starts then with with God causing the rapid growth of a plant, whatever species it was that isn't important. The the vegetation was dense enough though uh, to provide uh, Jonah with with a better shelter to, to cool him off. But we saw that the next day God killed off the plant. Added to this, God introduced this hot uh, wind blowing in from the east, which made Jonah's discomfort that much worse. So Jonah was depressed again. He wanted God to just kill him on the spot. Remember, he'd already been depressed when he started to see the Ninevites repent. Uh, in verse 
two of chapter four. Uh, we, 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 we see him, he's even complaining to God for being merciful, uh, for, for being patient, for turning away from the evils he threatened people with. He said, it's just like you to do that. Let's not forget, Jonah had only recently experienced the mercy of God for himself. And he, and he was full of praises to God for it. Yet now, he wanted that mercy denied to all those people. I'll reiterate a point I made a few weeks ago about Jonah's motives. Everyone's agreed Jonah regarded Nineveh as the enemy. And, and he would have been overjoyed to see God destroy them. But I said to you, there may be more to his desire than mere vengeance it's possible he wanted God to kill two birds with one stone by destroying Nineveh Israel would have one fewer enemy that's 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 true um, but it's possible Jonah wanted them destroyed as a warning to his own people perhaps he was thinking that if Nineveh was spared Israel wouldn't fear God, wouldn't repent, and then God would destroy them. I mean, the fact is, Israel should have repented anyway, regardless of what happened to Nineveh. They didn't, which is why God would bring down such a weight of wrath on them just a few decades later. Why Jonah was depressed now was, believe it or not, because of the dead plant. He was so happy at the relief from the heat that this plant gave him, it, it appears that he became immediately fond of it. I mean, I, I plant stuff, you know, vegetables and flowers, and I normally grow them from seed, so I will usually start them off in the house, in the warm, uh, away from the elements then I'll replant them after a while in a, when they've sprouted in a, in, a, in a different pot and I'll start to put them outside I might have to bring them in at night to, to in case it's frosty and then I supply them every day with water and make sure they have nutrients and so it might be that I dedicate months <laughs> months of the year for the prize of a fully grown plant which which may be eaten if it's a vegetable but if it's a flower you know I I just I, I gaze then on this this flower and and yeah I, I feel some attachment to it you know in a in a sense I, I I care for it I mean if someone came in the middle of the night and and vandalized all the flowers and chopped their heads off I'd be sad it's like I'm emotionally invested in this, this little plant. But that wasn't the case with Jonah. And God makes exactly that point in verse 10. Or as if it... Yeah, it's verse 10. He says, Jonah, you didn't nurture this plant. It grew and withered away in 24 hours. And it was God who, who did it all. But Jonah was upset when it died. And God points out how morally 
screwed up Jonah was to have compassion on a plant, but not want compassion to be shown to actual people. It may have surprised you that God brings cows into the argument. Cows, you know, he's talking about the lives of hundreds of thousands of people made in the image of God. You might wonder how that argument can be improved by talking about the loss of life of some cows worth far less to God. You know, imagine me telling you about how tragic it was that a city, you know, in Iraq maybe got bombed, resulting in the loss of life of thousands of people, not to mention all the cats that died. I mean, it would be it would be inappropriate and insensitive and if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be almost comical. But you see, God, he is working with a confused Jonah he has in front of him. If Jonah thinks more of the life of a plant than a multitude of people, just perhaps the killing of innocent animals might cause him to stop and think. It's like God's saying, okay, if you don't care about the people, what about the poor animals? The chapter ends all of a sudden with this uh, challenge of God's in verse 11. We're left to wonder just what Jonah was thinking at that point. We're hoping there would be this sudden realisation of, you know, how mixed up he'd been, that it was right for God to show compassion when he saw fit to do so. We should each take note ourselves of this lesson from God Our lives may be very different from Jonah's, but there's not one of us who's immune from having a lack of compassion at times. Unless we daily remind ourselves of the mercy we've received, there's always the temptation to wish for nothing else but vengeance on the wicked. Dare I say it, believers have even hoped for the downfall of other Christians. I said Jonah had made this confession about the, the, the grace of God. Now, the grace of God, believers will already know, you'll already know, presumably. There's not sort of one God of the Old Testament who's permanently angry, and then another one of the New Testament who's nice as pie. That's an ancient and heretical idea. It's the same God not only is he just as determined today to punish sin as he was then but he was just as much a god of grace and mercy then as he is now here's one example taken from exodus it's in chapter 34 and verse 6 And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. So with the rest of our time today, I'd like to pay some uh, attention to this confession of Jonah's. Now he may have uttered it in a spirit of anger 
and frustration. But it is undoubtedly a powerful confession uh, of some of the great uh, characteristics of God. So then, we think of God being gracious then and merciful. So we've already witnessed a significant example of the mercy of God when he backed off from destroying Nineveh. It's just one example of many, and it shows he's able to show compassion. I said last time, the way these scenarios are described for us is not how they really are. God was never going to destroy the city. It was most certainly within his power to crush that place, but he'd already determined not to. They didn't repent because they were less evil than everyone else. Quite the opposite. They repented because following God's threat via Jonah, God gave people the gift of repentance. Elsewhere we see God, um, we see people threatened by God and not repenting. They do get destroyed and in our efforts to understand the character of God, we need to grasp this important truth. God will show mercy to whoever he wants and he will deny mercy to whoever he wants. This principle is mentioned in Romans in connection with that big event, all that goings on in Egypt just prior to the Exodus. The apostle needed to explain this because people then and now wonder why God isn't compassionate to everyone. I mean, if God's able to have mercy on every person who's ever lived and whoever will live, why would he not do it? Well, <laughs> I know I know I know one of the answers to that 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 people some Christians would say, well, God just gives us the choice and then, you know, if we if we won't let him save us, then he won't force himself on us. I thank God he forced himself into my heart because I was a rebel. He had to break in and pin me down and, and change my heart. And then I began to feel repentant and I had a faith in Jesus. So it's clear that God can. He has the ability to save everyone and he chooses not to save them. Not because those people are more wicked than these people over here. No. Here's the answer. Explained by Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? The truth, harsh as it may sound to some, is that it was always God's intention to bring eternal ruin on some people so that 
his power and his holiness, his hatred for sin, could be displayed for the whole of creation, men and angels. If that truth is making you feel uncomfortable, then I'd suggest that you have a wrong view of who God is. So Jehovah is a God of grace, but he exercises it according to the good pleasure of his will. He directs it to whoever he wants. Now as for us, our greatest delight is to see God move in compassion. That's what we want. Don't find Christians praying for their friends and relatives. Lord, how wicked they are. Please hurry up and destroy them. We want to see him move in compassion. But we still acknowledge that his purposes in vengeance are good and right. Jonah was different. (laughs) Different from us. He, well, different from how we should be. He would have watched maybe half a million people, including women and children, get killed and be able to just smile about it. Strangely, when when God asked him if it was right for him to be angry, Jonah was probably thinking to himself, is it right for you? to be so gracious let's ensure we're not like that when we think about all the wonderful things tied up with the grace of God shown towards us let's desire the same compassion be extended to others and let's make sure we're as forgiving towards the brethren as God is to us as we look back we see today more clearly than any patriarch or prophet the grace of God at work. We're able to look back and see his grace in electing a multitude of people to salvation. Their deliverance being therefore absolutely certain. We see his grace in the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. It's a condescension of God to man whereby the Son placed himself in a lower status than even the angels. And we see his grace at Golgotha, where this innocent man, Jesus, stood in the place of sinners to take their punishment as if it was deserving, uh, as if he was deserving of it. We see God's grace at the tomb, where those abandoned burial clothes signified the rising of Jesus from the dead to vindicate us and to secure our escape from death at the resurrection. And we see God's grace in our own lives when the blessed Holy Spirit seeks us out, changes us, convinces us of our redemption and dispenses all the wonderful fruit of himself in our souls let's have a think about what else Jonah said he described God as being long suffering patient 
We all know what patience means. It describes when you know you, you have a desire to, to, to have something now or to do something now, but you hold back and you keep holding back. I thought I'd give you a few quick examples of some of the types of patience that we that we're, we're, we're aware of. So let's say we're in the queue at the post office. And we might be there longer than we, we hoped. We might have important places to go. We might be running short of time. And there may be some awkward customer up front who's being stupid or, or just too slow. <laughs> and we might start to get irritated. We might even be tempted to, to, to lean over and shout, Come on, there's people waiting here. And so to be patient there is to rein in that desire and keep quiet and we think about it and we realize that's the best choice because when we when we think about you know the the trouble that could be caused if we started shouting and it would make that person feel horrible it would make the post office staff feel awkward the people in the queue would be embarrassed and is all that worth it really just so we can vent our anger and maybe, maybe get to the counter 60 seconds quicker. Of course not. What about when we want something from God? Now, if we want something from God, we want it sooner rather than later. Now, it is okay that we continually ask him for it. You can ask him for it a hundred times a day. Every day. And... You know, if it's a right thing to ask for, he he loves that. He loves that um, that that strong desire, that enthusiasm, that real belief that he's able to give these things. But we've got to accept the possibility. God may have decided to 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 grant us our request, but maybe in thirty years' time. So, so here the temptation is to get annoyed at God. And so we hold back instead. We exercise self-control. We submit to his infinitely greater wisdom in knowing what we need and when we need it. And we, we also have God himself showing patience. Now this time, we don't, we don't really mean God you know, decides to exercise self-control. He's always in full control of himself. This isn't about God holding back from some sinful impatience. Instead, his patience describes how he puts judgment on hold or he delays intervention for some other reason. Think about what God's patience means in the present context in, in Jonah. He was patient in that he held back from carrying out a judgment on the Ninevites, which was completely just. And he did that to make room for the next stage in his plan, which was their repentance and his mercy. We need to make a distinction here, I think. Some people talk about God giving people a chance to repent is that true I'd say cautiously yes and 
definitely know as well. You see, in the picture the Bible gives us, you know, all throughout the Bible, including the current one, God appears to give them a chance. They take advantage of this delayed judgment and they claim the mercy of God for themselves. But, you know, theologically speaking, in reality, it's wrong to think God gives people a chance. He doesn't leave it doesn't leave these things to chance. We're meant to understand these, these, these pictures, these appearances as creative presentations of higher truths. We're meant to understand chance doesn't come into it. Every act of repentance, even though carried out by an individual, is ultimately a divine act of grace. Every person who's not part of that body that we call God's elect, those outside, let's call them reprobates. The reprobate realistically has no chance. Now, when they come into this world, you know, sin comes very naturally to them. But that's not an excuse. They're not forced to sin. They sin because they want to. And God holds them accountable for their sin. The, the Bible says these people who refuse to trust in Christ their whole lives are an abomination to him. I imagine he can barely stand to even look at them. But hang on. They're still walking around, going to work, spending time with the families, going on holidays and so on. Why are they still here? Why hasn't he struck them all down dead well this brings us to another angle in this patience of God so let's have another look at the verse we read a few moments ago I'm going to bring that up and I've emphasised part of it here what if God willing to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath the reprobates fitted for destruction God keeps reprobate sinners alive for a reason. He might let them live a long and prosperous life. <laughs> Longer and more prosperous than ours. But every day they exist without God, chasing their own pleasures. They're storing up judgment for themselves. The dreadful paradox here is, the longer they live, the worse it'll be for them. Because whether the rich or poor, they receive things from God's hands every day of their lives. Even the poorest people on earth are only alive today because God, to, up till now, has provided enough food and water and shelter for them. And let's not forget, every person who exists receives every heartbeat and every breath from God. No matter how long, a person lives, they receive an abundance of gifts from God. And this makes their guilt, their guilt for living independently of him, all the ways. If you're listening to this today and you're not sure if you belong to God or not, there is a good chance that you don't belong to him. And every day you carry on in this way is likened in the Bible to drinking in sin drinking sin 
it, it's as if each day you you fill you fill the cup of the wine of your sin till it's almost overflowing and then you take it in ravenously but that imagery in the bible has another side to it remember all your sins are increasing the punishment you'll face at the judgment and god's anger is itself described as the filling up of a cup just imagine this judgment goblet of God's being filled up day by day as his anger towards you grows and when the time comes you'll drink the wine of that fury to the very last drop God's patient with both types of people the truth is you don't know for sure which type of patience is being exercised in your case God hasn't killed you is it because he's as it were giving you space to repent is it that you're just storing up judgment for yourself well you should never think oh I, I'm doomed my, my doom is inevitable you should never ever think that you're still alive aren't you you can no more tell if you're one of God's elect than I can If what I've said just now frightens you in the least, then I'm very, very happy. It means I have your attention and I can tell you the gospel messages for people like you. I don't mean people who simply want to escape judgment. They love their sin. They just want to do whatever it takes just to get off the hook. I'm talking about people who genuinely want to get right with God to get forgiveness for the sins, to be adopted into God's family, to enjoy a resurrection to eternal life. You don't need to copy the Ninevites and sit on a pile of ashes and put some wear some rough clothing to, to, to punish yourself, but you do need to do that inwardly, if you like. You need to go to God in prayer at the very least and ask him to be merciful. Own up to your sins. Reel some of them off. Tell God how ashamed you are that you've loved sin so much. Ask him to help you not to sin from now on. Tell him you believe, yet yeah, Jesus died in your place. Tell him that you, 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 you dare to approach him at all because the Bible says you should. The Bible gives a promise that that he won't turn away anyone who comes to him in that fashion. And many people think this is just too easy. Honestly, some people think that can't be right, it's too easy. Tell them to go and flog themselves and they'll be saved. They'd rather do that than just stop and surrender. They wouldn't believe me if I told them that they could go from being on God's death row to being issued with a royal pardon within the space of five minutes. So sadly, some will never approach God in this way as a result. But don't copy them, copy us. Follow us into God's holy city and experience the wonderful things we enjoy. 
What about us who are believers? Well, God was patient with us, wasn't he? God was patient with us. He could have quietly, he could have quite rightly have uh, killed us as soon as we were born. Because we came into this world sinning like everyone else. But God was patient with us. He wasn't giving us more time in the hope we'd repent. His patience meant he predestined us to salvation and would therefore convert us at some stage in our lives and he lovingly put up with us until that appointed time. There's this well-known verse from the second letter of Peter, and verse 9. And it describes how God, as it were, you know, bides his time before he converts us. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, this verse has a particular application for the first century church, but I think it's right for us to use it today to comfort ourselves with. Now I say, for the comfort of believers, because that's who the verse is aimed at. Now I know, I know the verse is used by many evangelicals to, 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 to show God's desire or intention to save everyone. But in this verse, look, God's patience, look, God's patience there is, it's for the purpose of bringing about repentance. It's that type of patience. He's, he's long-suffering towards us, his people. He intends to save every one of us from perishing. And he instills in every one of us the spirit of repentance. Well, Jonah in his great confession unwittingly declares loudly the fact that God is a God of great love. God loved Jonah, I'm sure of it, and that love included doing both good things and bad things to him. There can't be any doubt. It says God sent the storm. God had him thrown in the water. Okay? It was God who scorched him in the heat. I know it's, it's hard for some Christians to reconcile God's love for them with the idea that bad things happen to, to them. Surely that can't be of God. A common belief then would be something like this. God loves us and does only good things to us, but circumstances in the world, time and chance, our own mistakes, the opposition of Satan, they bring bad things. Then God, because he loves us, comes along and fixes it and puts it right. Now I truly believe that the brothers and sisters who believe that way, they would find far greater comfort if they learned this one important truth. God deliberately sends 
suffering into the lives of his own children. Now, whether the immediate cause of our woes is, uh, you know, Satan, sinners or self, you can trace back the chain of causation to God himself. As the psalmist says, God is the author of both good and evil, not sin, but evil, bad things happening. We find another example right at the end of the Bible in the third chapter of Revelation, verse 19. Do you remember this one? As many as I love, all those I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Chasten, you know, um, like when you chastise a child. It's an act of love. Now, we know everyone in this world suffers in different ways. And we also know that the saints suffer in the same ways as everyone else. The accidents, the cancers, the everything. The difference is God ensures that when we suffer those things, good will come of it. So the comfort of this doctrine comes firstly through knowing God is sovereign in every aspect of your life, not just what you see as the good stuff. And secondly, comfort is gained by seeing that his reasons for allowing you to suffer are always good. So being our father, you might think of it like this. You might think that, you might say, well, God gives us treats in love and he smacks us in love. I know Jonah was having a, I know Jonah was having a, um, a difficult time with the sun, you know, battering his head, the scorching winds, dehydrating him. But he, he should have trusted God was still on his side. Instead of wanting to die, he should have thought, what lesson is God trying to teach me here? I've no doubt every believer who's ever lived will have made the same mistake. Sometimes the worse the difficulty we're going through, the more likely we are to despair. It's easy as a Christian to feel on top of the world, full of the joys of God, when things are going right. We might receive some great blessing, like the God which covered Jonah, uh, which God uh, covered Jonah with. But if it goes as the God did, we may find ourselves complaining or crying about our situation. And let's face it, the things of this world are very fragile. You know, for example, we have an abundance of food in the supermarkets, but with a significant enough disruption to the supply chain, within a week or two, we'd have rioting on the streets. We enjoy relative freedom, but but recent events have shown just how easily they can be taken off us. We have a mostly friendly and helpful police service in this country anyway, but that can turn into a force of oppression with just a change in the law. We enjoy peace with other nations, but on the whim of our leaders they might just decide 
to declare war on someone they don't like and start conscripting people again and sending our sons off to die in some foreign field for some cause they have no interest in. As believers, we have a great deal of freedom, don't we, in this country? We should, we should thank God for it. We can, we can worship together. We can read and distribute the, the Bible and Christian literature. We can take the gospel into prisons and even schools and, and the streets even. And yet with a change of government, we could see all that stripped from us in a very short space of time. Whatever we lose, it's essential we remember God hasn't abandoned us. I found this gem in one of the commentaries. Our God may be gone, but our God isn't. In any case, this world is not our home. Our home is the world that is yet to come. So we ought to hold on to the things of this world very lightly. You who are God's children should feel your soul warmed by the knowledge of God's everlasting love for you. He loved you in electing to save you before he even made the world. He set his love upon you in time and this love will continue into eternity. Well, I'd encourage you to spend some time today, if you can, while it's fresh in your mind, thinking through some of the themes we've covered as we've explored this book. This is why I encourage people to take notes. We talked about Jonah himself, didn't we? His rebellion against God, his childishness in running away, the danger God placed him in, his rescue, his repentance, the massive response to his preaching, and then the depression he felt, which was so bad he wanted to die. We also tried to learn from his story, from his mistakes, if you like, that we should take care in our obedience to God that we should never try to avoid God, but in all our difficulties, run to him in prayer immediately for help and forgiveness. We're to remember how uh, God's able to deliver us from the very worst of situations. We should have faith in God that, that the gospel we share as the exact effect on the people that God desires. And we daily remind ourselves of the grace of God shown towards us so that we never fail to be forgiving and compassionate to our fellow man and especially those who belong to the household of faith, the Church of God. And finally, we learned more about God or at the very least we were reminded about his character. We looked at his great power in being able to either destroy the city or bring about widespread repentance. 
we listen to Jonah's testimony about God being the Lord of salvation, saving whoever he will, whenever he will. We worked out what was meant by God repenting of the evil, concluding it's an act of love for him to condescend to describe himself uh, and his actions in ways understandable to the common man. And we were able to look past Jonah's complaints and hear only a glorious confession of the character of God. He is merciful and gracious. He is long-suffering towards us. He is abundant in goodness and truth. And he loves us, his people, with an immeasurable love that will never end. How full of uh, useful things and, and teaching this book of Jonah is. and This is just one tiny section of this larger this larger collection of books we call the Bible and we should treasure it this word of God it's worth more than all the money in the world it's worth more than all the wealth in the world so read it spend time in it make notes on it um, and when it's ministered to you each week you know try to spend time considering what's been raised I promise you the more time you you dwell on it and, and, and consider it the more blessed you will be as we say farewell to Jonah we thank God for blessing us as we learn more about how to conduct ourselves in this world but especially for allowing us yet another glimpse into his glorious, beautiful and loving nature and his purposes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you belong to the Lord, may the Lord bless you in that wonderful Saviour's name. Amen. So we come to the end of another Sunday service, the end of our book of Jonah. I want to thank you for joining with us. I look forward to seeing the New Road folks at our midweek Bible study on Zoom on Wednesday. Uh, the rest of you, you may see me next week. If you tune in next week, we will be starting a new book. So stay tuned and join with us again. We thank you and we pray the Lord will bless you mightily. Uh, in that wonderful name, 